people are becoming a bit over the person that's that's um, virtue signaling about all of their lifestyle choices and trying to potentially impose or encourage that on on other people. I think um, you know we've, there's there's more information in front of us all of us than there ever has been you know in the history of mankind. Confident on all of us citizens to make appropriate choices um, that we feel are in the best interests of our family, our community, uh, and the society we want to be a part of. G'day and welcome back to another week of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I just wanted to start off by saying a huge thank you and shout out to every single one of you that have been listening to the podcast ever, but more so over the last few weeks. I've loved seeing the photos of where you're listening to it, the episodes that you've loved, and just sending through a message with what you took out of each episode. So thank you so much for that. This episode of the Humans of Agriculture podcast was recorded on Gadigal People's Country of the Eora Nation, and I'd like to extend my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. And I'd like to extend those respects to the traditional owners of the country wherever you may be listening to the podcast. Well, LAWD came on early last year to support the Humans of Agriculture podcast, and we are so thankful for their support. LAWD are the specialists in agribusiness valuations and transactions, and they've certainly been keeping busy over the last 12 months with everything that's happening in the Australian rural property market. Jump over to their website, lawd.com.au, to check out their listings. We're jumping back into it, and we've got another heavy hitter of the Australian ag industry. Bryce Cam is a fourth-generation cattle producer. He's now taken over the reins of the family's agriculture business as the CEO of Cam Agricultural Group. Among the many hats Bryce wears, including the Chair of Beef Australia, past Chair of the Australian Lot Feeders Association, and Chairman of the Australian Beef Sustainability Steering Group, he's also an Eat Queensland champion, promoting all things food and fibre in the Sunshine State. I absolutely love this chat with Bryce. He was someone who I really wanted to chat to for such a long time. I wanted to understand how he is just doing so many different things and how he manages to fit it in. So it was awesome to just get a bit of an insight into who Bryce is, what drives him, and just what's next for him. Enjoy the chat, and we would love to know what you what your takeaways are from this episode and where you're listening to it. I actually think the last time I saw you was probably nearly the last time I actually saw people back in, in May at Beef, which was a hell of an event. You guys managed to scrape that in just in the nick of time. It was good management, I guess. I, absolutely. I mean, a lot of people have said to me, you know, we were very lucky at Beef Australia. I, I put it all to, to good planning and good management and foresight and leadership. <laughs> uh, we, we, we were able to pull off uh, the largest uh, event in regional Queensland in a global pandemic. Yeah, as, um, as some of the marketing team from MLA said to me, there are, uh, there are more people at uh, Beef Australia than there are spectators at the Tokyo Olympics, and that should have been our tagline. But um, I, uh, it was, it was very exciting, and I think um, we do reflect on it now that um, that we were incredibly lucky because I, I think, particularly in a Queensland perspective, uh, in May this year, we felt like COVID was on the way. It was um, and and I think the whole nation. I mean, the, the nation was open. Everyone came together, and and it was a it was a really joyous occasion to celebrate a great Australian industry. 
Um, but to, to sort of sit here at, towards the end of 21 and watch um, watch the lockdowns that have really sort of divided the nation again and even regions across states. And I know for Beef Australia, we've, you know, we've got some directors that are from Queensland and um, it's been really tough um, for them to be involved in either the wrap-up or that type of thing. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of a question which I'd be interested to know from your perspective, a lemon, so something sour from the year, but also an orange, what's been sweet about 2021 for you? Uh, I, I, I fear these types of questions. I, I read, a, read a quote yesterday and it's like, you know, my greatest fear is, is being asked to, you know, name something in, you know, tell us something interesting about yourself. But um, so a lemon for 2021, uh, I don't know. I, I don't, like I'm a glass uh, half full kind of person. So I, I'm always reflecting on the positive journey. It, um, I mean, if anything, uh, you know, it's in agriculture, it's always been season, right? It's always not raining enough or, or raining too much. Um, if anything, um, you know, it, uh, my sour moment would, would uh, we had the, the makings of a really brilliant winter crop and, um, and probably the season just became a little bit challenging towards the end. And then, and unfortunately, right when we we're about to kick off harvest, we, we got most of the rain that we should have got earlier. So that's probably my one lemon that's, that's very, very um, close in my mind at the moment. And, um, and the sweet moment, um, look, I think it has been a challenging year for a lot of people in a lot of areas and particularly with the lockdowns. Um, I, I do embrace, I think, um, I think the agricultural community, um, has done a really good job, I think, of staying unified. And, and I think we those that are typically used to being isolated, working in regional areas, I think have embraced, uh, we've embraced technology very well. We've, um, you, you know, that, that sense of building community when you when you can't just walk out the door and, and have a chat with someone. I think um, I think the ag community has done a good job at bringing, at, at, you know, at enhancing the the strengths that we have around that. Um, and, and look, absolutely. I mean, we mentioned before um, pulling off Beef Australia um, this year is is absolutely probably one of the highlights, not just of twenty one, but um, of my career so far. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely one one to remember. And I think yeah, well, it's been an interesting year, isn't it? Like for for ag and, and kind of regional, it's it for the first time in God knows how long, everyone's kind of craving that they just want to be out in the regions and it's kind of really longing for it. So I think while, while we've got that kind of interest from people, we really need to capitalise on it and particularly when it comes to tourism and, and other areas oh, too. 100%. I mean, it's a spotlight that, that you know, is absolutely shining on, on ag and regional areas and, and you don't want to miss that opportunity, right? So, I mean, it's fantastic that so many Queenslanders, you know, typically their first holiday destination during the COVID period has been Hamilton Island because you feel a little bit like you've gone overseas, but... The next piece is absolutely Longreach and Winton and the great, you know, Western Way and um, and absolutely it should be. Like, it, it's really good that people are connecting with those areas. But we, I think it's also great that there's a, you know, it's a strong commodity pricing and a good boom and a sense of positivity and a good season around most of ag. Um, but we've really got to utilise that platform that we've got at the moment to continue to make good stories. Yeah, for sure. In terms of, I do want to wind back the clock. It's not too too long ago, Bryce, but uh, for you growing up as a kid in rural Australia, whereabouts was home for you and what was your childhood like? Yeah, I had a, uh, a fantastic childhood. So I grew up on a uh, on a cattle station uh, called Natel Downs, so um, located in North Queensland, about um, 
south of Charter Stowers, so about 140-odd kilometres south of Charter Stowers. Uh, and so I'm the, the youngest of, um, of four siblings and, uh, and that was, uh, yeah, our, our home. It, um, and so, um, I'm the youngest by a bit of a shot. I, I call it the most cherished favorite child. Um, other people might've said I was a mistake, but, um, but look, <laughs> I, um, so I guess I was a bit younger than everyone else in my family. So I think you kind of grow up a little bit quicker or you end up doing what everyone else is doing. So. Um, I uh, did my early schooling via correspondence and my mum was very much my um, my teacher, um, but she also ran the business and kind of ran a household and, um, and was very active outside. So I think we tried to squeeze you know, on air, you know, when kind of correspondence into maybe a couple of hours a day. Um, and that was my job to get that out of the way while she was probably doing other office work. And then we'd be off. We'd either be on a run or um, or catching up with wherever the mustering team was um, for the rest of the day. And that's, I yeah, so I absolutely did like that um, kind of getting out very early um, and getting involved um, in our family business. Um, and it was probably, I mean, I then, you know, went off to boarding school in Brisbane. Um, but it's uh, one of the big things that I think, then moving to, to Brisbane and in um, you know into a school of thousand kids and a couple of hundred in a dorm, you, you all of a sudden have to learn how to be a twelve year old again um, at some point. So that was yeah, it was an interesting transition, but I really enjoyed that part of my life as well. It's interesting. I'm starting to see a bit of a trend with kids who have done school of the air, and it always seems that it was yeah squeeze those school hours into as few hours as you can to then get out into the paddock so <laughs> and, and look it's a, i mean i uh, you know never look at my spelling or punctuation it's a disaster and that i probably i do blame on school here but I, I you know it was i never felt disadvantaged or you know in that education i think of so many um really articulate you know outgoing people that that came up through that correspondence and school year system and it's just a it's a really great network that should be celebrated and it's a great, um, I think it's a really iconic Australian form of education as well. But it's, um, yeah, it was, a, it was, I mean, it was sort of that best of both worlds because, you you know, it was a formalised education piece, but but you were, you know, living on a cattle place and 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 really, you know, embracing that family life, um, which was, yeah, it was very exciting. Sounds pretty cool, I reckon. In terms of, for you, is that the interest in ag and being in the paddock was there? Was it pretty obvious once you landed yourself in, in Brizzy at boarding school and kind of through those later years of high school that agriculture was going to be the calling or, or where'd you head? Yeah, I think I, I think initially when I went down, I mean, I, I probably loved, well, I think, yeah, I, I, as I said, in, in year eight when I went, I was 12, um, you know, the excitement of playing sport, you know, team sport in particular and, and all of a sudden having a, you know, bunch of people your own age and and you know and hanging out that was really fun I think it was probably halfway through year nine I, I vividly remember my parents didn't come down to take us out on weekends a lot because it was 1400 kilometers away so I think they had been down in Brisbane took me out and you know and dumped me back at boarding school on a Sunday night and I think it finally clicked that maybe my parents hated me and they'd sent me away to boarding school some 1400 kilometers <laughs> away and why have they done this um but I think uh you know I think what I very quickly realised, and, and in our family, um, you know, mum and dad absolutely put the emphasis on on all of us going away to school to to see how the rest of the world, um, you know, operated um, and get exposure to that and to get the best education that we could and could afford. 
Um, and I think, and I absolutely thank them, you know, I'll be forever thankful of that because it just opened up your world to the to the various opportunities. Um, particularly for people growing up in a regional or an isolated area, I think that's absolutely critical. Um, so as I progressed through, you know, into the high school years, like in, in year 11, year 12, I, I knew I came from an agricultural background. I knew that was always going to be eventually home, um, but I was quite keen to probably, um, I don't know, I had a plan to get off and be like an investment banker or something of the sort. So it, um, so I mean, I went off to uni after that. I did a dual degree in commerce and communications. Uh, I went to Bond University on the Gold Coast, uh, which was a private uni. So I got a scholarship to go there and, and I was, I mean, I was most excited about going to UQ and college and having a lot of fun. Um, and I think my mother was was uh, on to me at that stage <laughs> and was pushing Bond because it, uh, because of the compressed nature of it. So you did three semesters a year and got through the degree a bit quicker. Um, now I look back at it and I go, why would anyone fast track university? That's crazy. It's a yeah. great time of your life. <laughs> but I did a dual degree in two and a half years. So uh, all of a sudden you're, you're off into the workforce very quickly. And I am I'm really, I, I don't actually regret that decision because um, I would have struggled with a break. Um, and, and one of my sisters went off to, to uni um, studying commerce and law and, and got wrapped in the romance of being back on a cattle place and never went back to finish it. So um, we had learned our lesson in, in that regard. So I was um, quite keen to, to head off, um, you know, to, I guess, you know, continuing that story of being more exposure to other things, uh, particularly, um, you know, from a business perspective. But um, but actually we had a, a, a bit of a family um, a tragedy. My mother had a, quite a serious horse accident um, while I was at uni and she played a really crucial in our business and um and so i i felt a um thing to, to come back home sort of immediately and help out which um which while i didn't get that opportunity to head off and and sort of do other things i think you know at a very young age i had an opportunity to be taking on responsibility and, and parts of our business that that um that i absolutely otherwise would not have um and my family does absolutely transcribe to the single spin methodology of uh, of lifelong learning. So it is, you know, there's a there's a gig or there's a job or there's a task. Um, you might, you know, uh, the family's very supportive, so we'll be there for you to catch you if it all falls away. But um, but the best way of learning is is you know getting amongst it and getting hands dirty and um, and giving it a go. And and so um, yeah, I, I absolutely my you know. Spent some time up north um, after uni at the start, and then um, I think my, my father had a cunning plan that I would come down here and, and run the feedlot asset um, in the south or on the Darling Downs, and so I ended up down here and um, and been here for quite a while since. Hi, I'm Pia, horticulture and sugar analyst at Rabobank, and I'm here to share our latest insights on Australia's vegetable market. Did you know in 2023, Australia produced over $5.8 billion worth of vegetables, though only 4.3% of this was exported. Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market. In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, and countries with low cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, Mapping World Vegetable Trade, 
or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more. <laughs> have, you, have your other siblings ended up in the business as well or, or what are they up to these days? Yeah, so the youngest of four, we're all um, involved in the beef industry. So as I said, mum and dad invested in education and try as they may to send us off and set us on to other things. I think we did all come screaming back um, to the beef industry. It, yeah, really? uh, so um, my two sisters are married, have their own operations, um, and we do work in quite a bit um, in terms of um, synergies between those businesses. And my sisters are still involved with our family council and the direction of this greater entity. Uh, my brother um, operates um, uh, one of our places in central Queensland, so Piketty at Murrumbah, and he looks after that part of the operation. Yeah, cool. That's um, that's awesome. In terms of for you, do you reckon that's because you came back into the family business kind of under such circumstances and, and fairly quickly, has that driven the interest and involvement outside? It, it, look, 100%. Um, I, it, um, I, it's funny, I've got some, you know, quite entrepreneurial friends from uni in particular that are off doing um, their own thing. And I, and I think which, which is great, we do celebrate entrepreneurialism um, in our society um, and I always laugh a little bit at them in jest and say, you've got it really easy. You're out there starting and just all you've got to do is focus on a business. It, uh, I've got to focus and manage the business and then turn around and manage the family and keep keep both together. Um, so it is, I mean, family business is highly, highly rewarding, but don't ever let anyone tell you it's a walk in the park and it's the greatest business model that exists. Um, but in saying that, um, I think if you can pull the two off, if you can, if you can manage that family dynamic and cohesiveness, um, the power, the power that is available in those um, family entities is really strong. And I think uh, it's no mistake that we see globally some of the you know strongest businesses have usually got a, a, a substantial family behind them driving them. Um, but you're right. I I do I. You know, I absolutely crave that um, that outside conversation uh, and and kind of lifelong learning. Um, and so, getting involved in other organisations um, outside of our own business, um, people always say to me, you know, "How do you do that? How do you have the time?" Um, and for me, it is um, it is really you know, I think always give a job person because you just you know you learn how to prioritise and you learn how to things work, but. Um, I really enjoy things like Beef Australia or in being involved in industry organisations um, because you meet so many people, different people from different walks of life. You you have to work through different challenges that are not necessarily part of your everyday business and life. Um, and and I think yeah, I think that's part of good personal development is is being involved in other conversations. Definitely, I'm frantically writing notes as we're talking because it it's an interesting point I think you say around that give a busy person yeah tasks because they'll get it done for you do you like what what's been the opportunity cost like do you look back at some of the involvement and you think shit i've missed out on this i've missed out on that or do you kind of you don't don't look in the rear vision mirror too much yeah i don't really and and look i have you know just finished a tenure of three years as the president of the australian lot feeders association a terrific uh organization that i was very proud to leave and 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 um lead and very proud to still be a part of um and so i guess it you know when you when you step down from from those sort of positions you do reflect back and think oh well you know was that a good investment of my time and and, and i mean I, I think um i don't see it as a i don't see it as a trade-off because to be honest 
I think, and, and our family has always had an ethos. If you're going to be in a, invested in a business financially and time-wise uh, and in, in an industry, um, then, then it makes sense to invest in that industry and, and be involved in the conversation around policy and its leadership and its direction. Um, and so I found the time on Alpha very rewarding in terms of, you know, leading some of that policy discussion, but also being you know, exposed to what R&D works that we, the industry was undertaking, um, you know, where we were directing, um, you know, levy spend around marketing and promotion of the wider sector. Uh, those things are really, um, you know, having the opportunity to assist in that direction has been very beneficial to my business as well. Um, I do... Um, I do advocate, and, and I have now not being in the chair role, um, that I do think those types of roles uh, should not necessarily in 2021 be a large job. Um, you know, the Australian grain-fed beef industry now represents over 50% of beef production in this country. Um, we're not, Alpha has a proud history, over 50 years as an organisation on kind of running things on the smell of an oily rag. Um, but when we look at the Australian feedlot industry, it's a... It's a multi-billion-dollar industry. It's some eight billion dollars to the um, to the national economy. Um, you know, there's very substantial businesses, including some of the largest protein companies in the world uh, that that organisation represents. Um, to think that the chairman should do that role out of the goodness or his or her heart uh, is, is a very noble, question, but I don't think it reflects uh, where our, our leadership and our peak industry body should be in 2021. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And and for you, you've you've stepped aside. You're the immediate past chair of Alpha. There, what's it what's it like, kind of? Because uh, people may, who may not know, like you're still in your mid thirties, so you're still very young. But actually stepping aside and kind of have like living through succession, kind of probably still while that fires, I presume, would be burning pretty bloody hot. <laughs> I mean, some people have sort of, you know, oh, you've retired at the ripe age of 37. Yes. <laughs> it, it, um, but it, uh, oh, look, I mean, Alpha is a great team and, and Barb Madden, our new president, um, you know, is is absolutely red hot in the position, is, um, will be such a, such a great journey um, following her leadership of, of the um, So, I mean, I don't kind of dwell on, on, on stepping back. It, I think, um, it is always, you know, in my mind, it's about further progression and um, and and I guess you know, finding what what's the next um, kind of place to contribute back to industry and society in general. And so, in terms of in the immediate horizon or or short mid midterm horizon, what? <laughs> yeah, I, I look. I ended it like the media release. A bit more time to be at Wonga Plains um, <laughs> and, and just being doing a bit of my day job. Um, but yeah, no. Look, I, I I don't have the answer of of you know, what's involved next for me, but I'm sure something will um something will will jump out before I know it, and we'll be off on the next journey. This podcast has been produced in collaboration with Antola Trading, owned and designed in Outback Australia. Antola have always been known for making some of the best quality work shirts money can buy, but their latest collection is extra special. As you're probably well aware now, Antola's founder, Alicia McClymont, has chosen 23 men and women who she sees are doing incredible things across regional and rural Australia as the Antola ambassadors. And we're here to tell their story through the Humans of Agriculture podcast. 
Made from 100% cotton, the shirts are perfect for those long hours in the sun and a hard day's work. And what's more, with every purchase of their new season's kids' shirt, Entola will donate $2 to the Ronald McDonald House charity in Brisbane to help those families who have to travel far in order to help sick kids. You can find out more at www.entolatrading.com. What I'm keen to talk to you about as well around is kind of where the conversation's progressing around, particularly I think red meat, but beef specifically um, the in terms of the conversations that now the globe's having around, um, yeah, greenhouse gases and emissions. And I think, yeah, the, the beef industry has been painted in a fairly poor light because people have remained fairly quiet for quite some time. But what, um, what do you reckon is the real opportunity in this conversation and where does beef sit as part of this whole larger global discussion around climate change? Yeah, absolutely. I, um, so I think, I think where does beef sit? I think we are for the first time actually finding our voice and our role in a global conversation. Um, and I think we're a little bit late to that party as well. I think the, I think, um, you know, that conversation's kind of been having, with, without us being a very active participant. Uh, but I think that that's changing rapidly. And I think what's really nice is that it, we're doing that in a unified approach around the whole supply chain. So, so it's right from the cow-calf producer right through to the retailer, um, you know, and everyone involved along that supply chain. And also all of those, you know, service businesses um, and all of those involved in kind of, um, you know, beef production um, have realised that this is all, part, you know, we're, we're all part of that journey and conversation. So I think that's the first part. Um, and, and then to do that on a, you know, a global front. So I think of like the, the Global Meat Alliance and, and conversations, um, you know, justice and things like that. It's the first time that we've kind of realised it's not about American beef or Australian beef or Brazilian beef. It's about beef, Inc., um, so that's also a kind of, um, you know, I think a pivotal moment that occurred. Um, I think politics and food, I, you know, it's nothing new, right? I, I think, you know, the Egyptians learnt that if you controlled the feed stocks and, you know, put the harvest in a, you know, in a secure spot and then controlled how everyone got an allocation of that, um, you probably, you know, you got to and you got to kind of, you know, build a, a you know, a, the way you wanted it. And I think there's been many lessons in history about that. So, so I think that the the outcomes around control, you know, the politics involved in food production, I don't think is anything new. Um, what I'm thinking, what and what, what I think those that potentially oppose beef production and really um, you know, have been up on soapboxes really banting the negative messages um, around global, you know, meat production in general, but also very specifically targeting nut beef. Uh, I think they've done themselves um, something in that space because the, even the average punter, in my view now, kind of understands that there's a lot of bias in everything that they're hearing. Um and that they need to really apply a filter and a lens to that in saying if someone's telling them to be totally keto or totally carbohydrate-free or, or grains-based or non-dairy, you know, everyone is telling you everything about how to live and eat. And I think people are a little bit exhausted. And I think COVID might have might have amplified that a little bit more is that 
things are tough, right? And, you know, particularly if you're in lockdown and one of your only pleasures is if you can't travel, you can't see your friends, you can't go to the pub, you can't go overseas, you can't go snow skiing, is having a good steak and a bottle of red wine, you know, at home with your nearest and dearest, well, that's a very pleasure. Um, and and I think, you know, it, we've, we've sort of learnt that through the last couple of years that, that those simple pleasures, those, those experiences around, um, you know, food and, and home living is really important. And, um, and I think there's no better way in articulating good stories about the Australian beef industry than through the product itself. Uh, because I think the, the, you know, it tells the story that we, you know, that we definitely need to convey. I think people, you know, we absolutely need to talk about our environmental credentials and our sustainability, um, but people can get very lost in the science. Um, and I think about, you know, it's only as, as early as this morning. You know, Greenpeace has finally, after, you know, weeks of speculation and discussion, you know, launched a dire tribe of, of you know, attacks on the Australian and particularly the Queensland beef stream around land clearing. And those statistics, they have picked up a starter set and and have absolutely used that with, with unashamed bias to, to portray a story that is absolutely not true. Um, that 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 is that is grabbing one umpteenth of the data and promoting that. And the the the, the actual fact is, you know, uh, Queensland is in a is Queensland is in a net growth of, of forests and tree cover. Um, and that's the that's the message that the wider industry um, is now on the front foot of articulating. And and I think we need to get a bit more firmer on that of of when industry you know, finds an error or finds, a, you know, what should be a really reputable group, a global movement, um, really using isolated data and facts and, and really targeting unfairly in industry. Um, I think that's, you know, we're seeing that, you know, industry's standing up for itself and saying, hang on a minute, that's that's really not right. Uh, I think it's a bit the same about, you know, the, the truth and labelling uh, piece that Senator Susan McDonald's running around red meat labelling. Um, you know, buying something in the supermarket that says it's a plant-based Wagyu patty, um, it's, you know, if I was, I keep on using the opposite acronym, you know, if I was selling a beef-based carrot patty or a beef-based carrot to people, there would be outrage and people screaming on the streets. Mm. Um, so, so it absolutely shouldn't be any different on our side and I'm, and I'm really glad that industry, um, you know, is taking things like that to the forefront. It might be like the... Um the average punter who gets paid 50 bucks a game for playing local footy classes himself as a professional rugby player. And that's the. <laughs> and, and look, I, I think, um, I think because that's the other thing, right. A lot of these stories, you know, do amplify around the barbecue with you know, neighbors, right. And kind of, you know, you've got to eat grass fed beef because it's the best, you know, like we've, um, but I think, uh, I think, you know, I think, again, whether it is COVID, but my sense in my friendship groups were a bit, people are becoming a bit over the person that's that's um, virtue signalling about all of their lifestyle choices and trying to potentially impose or encourage that on, on other people. I think, um, you know, we've, there's, there's more information in front of us, all of us, than there ever has been, you know, in the history of mankind. Um, and the availability of education and upskilling has, has never been, you know, easier to access. So incumbent on all of us citizens to, to make appropriate choices um, that we feel are in the best interests of our family, our community, 
uh, and the society we want to be a part of. And, and food and our food systems are really crucial around that. But, but we know that trends um, and following, you know, mega trends on kind of plant-based or, you know, grain-free, uh, you know, when, when you apply that on the magnitude of the amount of human beings on the planet that we have to feed today, um, you know, rapid movement in those trends is not good. It's not good for the for the planet and the environment. It's not good for businesses and communities that are involved in food production. And I think that message is filtering through and I think we're getting some sensible comments around that. For sure. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's kind of, it's, it's one of those things where it's so many of these conversations just seem to be one dimensional and it's like, oh, we'll just do that and this will solve everything. But that, I think there's the the trade-off part. If that happens, then what are the ramifications or implications of that happening that start to flow on? And sometimes that's missed. I, I do want to ask around, because I know that you're very, uh, I'd say you're a vocal voice in terms of one representing the industry, but actually making sure that people understand that the views, whether whether it's animal activism or the yeah health and nutrition of beef, et cetera. But how do we get more people as an industry involved and, is it purely by just spruiking facts or how, how do we, yeah, get more people into this conversation? Uh, I mean, I, I think all those, com- you know, conversations always start with two people, right, conversing. So I think it's the, you know, beholden on everyone that's in the in the sector to to be prepared to, to have that conversation at that bar required. Um, but not everyone you know, is comfortable being an advocate or being out there kind of, um, you know, fronting the, the requirement of telling the story. And, and I think that's fine as well. I, I do, I'm always conscious that as an industry, we, we kind of feel that we want to upskill everyone to be on Twitter and attacking back. And and I, I, I probably have pulled back a bit from that myself. I find it a bit exhausting, to be honest, um, because you can... Um, you can get led astray that that, that really um, that that what seems like a bonfire in in the perspective of everything else that's going on in people's lives. Um, food activism is actually really really important. And while while I think it's you know we're absolutely passionate about it and defending ourselves, um, you know it's it's not front of mind of the consumer that's that's you know about order a meal or while. So I think it is about getting, you know, but but it is always about getting communicatable, you know, um, actual clean messages um, out into society and conversation. And I, I think one of the greatest ones the Australian beef industry has done, and and um, and I do thank MLA for their leadership on that, was around the CN um, 2030. So, um, you know, that was a real leadership position. It, it wasn't something that was, you know, endorsed widely accepted by industry at the start, but um, is now. And um, I think we get that while while all of Australian society has felt like, you know, and politically especially has torn itself to bits over whether we should need to commit to 2050 over the last couple of years, um, here is an industry that everyone's potentially trying to throw a rock at and telling the, the, us that we're part of the problem. Here is an industry that's done more than any other industry uh, in the country of already, um, you know, alleviating its carbon footprint, um, but is committed to carbon neutrality, in, you know, now eight years away. Um, you know, I think that story, that message just needs to be, you know, screamed from the rooftops and, um, and it's really celebrated. Like it's, 
um, you know, it's a really, it will be a great accomplishment when we achieve it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when you think it's only kind of eight years away, I was going to say it's scary, but I think it's probably more so. It's ex- it's exciting because it just shows, yeah, kind of the, the boldness to set a target, but then to actually get on with the job to move towards it and, and ultimately achieve it that shows the progress. No, absolutely. It removes a lot of the, uh, a lot of the, I'd say hate speech as well, because then what's the next part of Well, if you take away the, you know, the, the, what are, what's the big footprint, you know, what's the big issue around beef production is, you know, is its so-called environmental footprint. And, I, I mean, I, it's like the tree clearing debate. I, I really, I mean, we are one of the only industries that, that can coexist with natural forest and in a lot of um, cases enhance the natural landscape um, through the appropriate management of, of cattle grazing. Um, and, and again, I don't, unfortunately, we don't celebrate that, you know, um, and we don't really articulate that story. But I think, again, that, that is changing. Um, yeah, it's good. Absolutely. I've got a couple of questions I want to wrap up with. One, obviously, you're, you're an Antola ambassador as well, alongside a good friend, and she gave you a pretty decent plug as well in her episode being Amanda Mewen. Um, Amanda spoke, yeah, quite a lot about just the role mentor that you had played as a mentor for her who have been your mentors along your path in industry or, or what role have mentors played for you yeah um I, look I, i'm a big believer in, in mentors and um and that communication between generations um and, and and i don't just mean age group generations but i think people that are at various stages in their career or job progression or life um I think it's really important that that um, you know people coming up through have the ability to, to converse with some of those that have already gone before, um, and I think it's a great. Um, I think you learn a lot out of reflection, um, and and so I think for for those mentors um, in imparting that knowledge back, they also learn a lot about themselves. And I think very much of the Graham Acton uh, Beef Connections program that. Uh, that I and a number of colleagues um, started uh, with Beef Australia. We've just completed our third um, cohort, have completed their journey through that program. Um, Amanda uh, was actually in the first one. And um, and what always amazes me, like you so you have some really high-caliber people out of the Australian beef industry, you know, some people like Prue Bonfield and Richard Rains and, you know, these great people that have, um, Greg Pankhurst, you know, like people that have just done some amazing things both here in Australia and overseas. Um, and and they give so generously their time to, to take a young person um, through over, you know, an 18-month period. And at the end of the program, all of these, you know, great leaders of the Australian beef industry say, I was just so wrapped to be a part of that program because I got so much out of it myself. So I think that's the really nice piece about mentoring. Um, look, I, I actually, um, I mean, so mine are, you know, some some close family friends and um, and and even, you know, my parents, I, I really see as mentors as well. I've never actually been through a really structured mentoring program um, that, that there are a lot around these days. But I, I do think, um, you know, those conversations, um, and I think of, of Graham Acton himself that we named that program after, um, you know, really visionary old people. Um, you know, running, you know, huge business empires, but then also, you know, we're very accommodating to always pull up and have a chat with, with you know, younger people or the, the stocky that had just started. And and I think that it was something drummed into us, um, you know, growing up in our family. It just, 
you you know don't ever think you ever end up high and mighty you know in your life it um it's really important that you you've got the ability to to converse with everyone um you know uh, that you come into interaction with and um and I think one one thing that we really drive through at our feedlot, it doesn't matter whether you're the feedlot manager or the guard that just got put on to clean water troughs. Um, if if both people aren't doing their job, then the whole thing falls down, right? And so I think that's an, you know, a really important message. That um, that I think um, thankfully there's a lot of um, mentoring programs out there, um, and I think the the understanding of that um, yeah, is something that is really embracing at the moment. Absolutely, and I think that. That part as well where it is the accessibility of people in agriculture is kind of i guess i haven't really known other industries but it, it that opportunity to access kind of people like yourself for a chat or, or whoever it might be it's literally as simple as asking the question and, and finding the time and more often than not people are going to find that for you so yeah I, and i mean because i think people really enjoy that that sharing um, of information i know in the feedlot sector um, you know, we don't see each other as competitors. People are really open to sharing information or things that have worked and, and also the failures. Let's face it, we learn a lot through failure. Um, you know, my family took a foray into cotton farming. So we didn't know anything about it, but found again, that's an industry that really embraces information sharing and conversing and, um, and, and that makes for a better industry collectively, which I, yeah. Absolutely. One final question, which I ask absolutely everyone, and this is the curliest of them all. No, um, you get the chance to go back down to to your high school or chat with Year Ten students and let them know why a career in agriculture could be something that they should potentially consider. What would be your message to them? Uh, I, I miss it. My message is really it'll be the journey of your life because it is, um, you know, it's it's not a it's not a you know. Um, I, I'm the personality type that likes, you know, lots of difference and change and evolution and, um, you know, I hate doing the same thing every day. And I think one thing you're absolutely guaranteed in agriculture is you will not be doing the same thing every day. Um, and so, and, and that, and there's just so many avenues and opportunities you can take it in. Um, but I think the, the finally, I think, you know, the, is really the, the message around ag is that um, at the moment is it's, there's a, you know, a really bright future. Um, there's great money to be made. There's great lifestyles, um, you know, in terms of being involved in the regions and um, and really good people involved in it. I think that's the message that we've got and encouraging more people in. Um, and I love nothing more in our business when we find someone who has, has come from absolutely a zilch agricultural background. You know, the kid out of Sydney who decided he wanted to go west and, and in a lot of instances, they become um, they become some of the, you know our best team members because they um, they, they bring a, an outside perspective. Um, they, they don't have any of the safety net of you know of a family or anything um, around it. They're, they're just they're there because they're really passionate about the industry and where it's going. And that's great. Absolutely. Now, as a kid from Sydney myself, I, I love to hear things like that. As Bryce wrapped up there, there is so many opportunities and so many avenues that a career in agriculture can take you, and no two days will be the same. If you guys enjoyed this podcast, we'd love for you to check out our other episodes, and also make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. If you want to read more about Bryce's story or check out some of the incredible organisations that he's working with, 
jump over to humansofagriculture.com and you can follow the story about Bryce there.